Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is a, a Tuesday, December the 1st, 2015. This is episode 1684 of the Survival Podcast. And as you might imagine, I kind of made a thing out of December the 1st because It is the first day of the last day of the month. Tick tock, tick tock, just like I said yesterday. 2015, boom, gone. Gone, guys. Christmas, Christmas Day. Okay, if you count today, 24 days away. 24 days and a wake up, and you got Christmas Day. Christmas Day marks, for most of us, I think, kind of a, a turning. Even though the new year officially begins a week later on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, depending on how you look at it personally, I think we kind of all look at Christmas as like this, this ending to the year and the beginning of true winter. I mean, winter actually begins. A lot of us are like, winter's like now, dude. It's cold. And guys, it's been colder here than normal. Uh, we've only had one or two days where it actually froze. We've had a lot of days like in the low 30s, just Like we're skating above the freezing mark by some mark of luck, but cold all day long. Highs are like 41. Yeah, North Texas, November, highs like 41. Um, and we feel like it's winter. It's winter. It's dark. Oh, it's dark so early. We blame daylight savings times, but it's not daylight savings time's fault. This is normal time. I found it ironic on Facebook, guys, with listening to so many people bitch about daylight savings time when the time came back last month. And it's like... Um, no, this is normal time. This is normal time. And normal time, it seems to speed up as you get toward the end of the year. And that's perfectly normal. And there's a lot of downtime this time of year. Use this time, guys. Be with your families, especially through the holidays. Reflect. Be grateful for what you have. But also use this downtime, these, these shorter days and longer nights, to plan for what you're going to be doing in 2016. Do you hear that? Those of you that are like my age and older, guys in your 40s and early 50s, the 1980s don't seem that long ago, do they? Do you remember when a 1985 car was new? Do you? Do you remember when you were jealous of the, your buddy in high school whose dad went out and bought him like a 1985 car in like 1988 or 1989? Right, he's only three or four years old. Remember that? And that car was almost brand new. And you, like me, you're probably driving around a 1970 beater Pontiac Grand Prix with a big pointed hood like that. And how old, how much older now is a 1985 car versus how old a car that was made in 1970 was in 1985? It starts to make you feel your age. And I don't ever say that to depress you. Sometimes you start to feel your age and you really start to think about it. It's kind of depressing. It shouldn't be. I should light a fire under your ass to hashtag get shit done, guys. That's what it's all about. Getting things done. Making your mark while you're here. Making your dash matter. Another year is almost gone. One month left in it. Make the most of it. As we move into today's show, which is going to be a show that's great for times like this, because we're going to talk about making things to imbibe in and relax and enjoy and share with friends. Yes, mead. Cider and fruit wines. That's what today's going to be all about. And the simple new way that I'm doing it, making it in bottles that come right off the store shelves, the next thing you know, they're bubbling and fermenting away. 
one step away from, I guess, what you would call, you know, prison yard hooch. But yet it's pretty good, amazing stuff. Some of it's been winning major awards, guys. There's uh, Edward's Apple Vine, right, which is like a German apple wine, kind of a dry cider type thing, that's won major awards and has taken off like crazy. It's made out of things like Mott's and treetop apple juice. Crazy? Yeah, but easy, fun, and enjoyable, and a good change-up of shows. We talk a lot about dark stuff, but improving your own skills, being able to create your own things, saving money? What does a six-pack of Angry Orchard that tastes like crap cost? Well, today I'm going to tell you how to make basically five full wine bottles of really good, amazing apple cider for about eight bucks. Compare that to Angry Crappy Orchard. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. 
Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1684, because the episode is 1684. We have prostitution is defined more precisely. I'm not going to read that one, but basically the king of, uh, of France, you know, like threatened these horrible punishments for prostitutes and men were using this to blackmail women into doing things like going to Canada and marrying fur trappers. And the king said, yeah, just because a woman's hanging out in the street doesn't mean she's a prostitute. Here's what it actually means. Sometimes if you're going to have a law, you got to define things. I bring that up because today we're going to start with a whole bunch of definitions. And sometimes definitions are important to whatever you're trying to accomplish. The one I'm going to read to you today is 4,000 buffalo bite the dust. It's not called Texas yet. The region is called Concho Valley, and buffalo herds use the valleys as a winter haven. Juan Dominguez has been sent from New Mexico to establish missions and build a fort there, but when the thunder of tens of thousands of buffalo shake the valley, he gets the idea of collecting their hides. The buffalo bring diseases they trample through Concho Valley. Nevertheless, the animals provide meat for the Spaniards and hides for warmth. Juan and his men kill 4,000 This is the first mass hunt for buffalo ever recorded. Thereafter, the desire for mass buffalo hunts falls off. The Indians will continue to collect the hides for sale, and that process will remain comfortably inefficient until after the Civil War. The organized hide hunts will lead to the near extinction of the buffalo. My take by Alex Shrugged. After the Civil War, buffalo herds seemed endless, and the profit to be made was tremendous when compared to startup costs, which are almost none if one already owned wagons and .45 caliber rifles. After one season, owner remarked that his greatest expense had been the cost of the coffee, Well, I've heard stories of buffalo being killed left to rot. The organized expeditions killed only as many as the Skinners could process. The meat was carried back in the wagons. It was an extremely efficient process. In fact, it was too efficient. By 1880, the herds of buffalo at the Concho Valley were gone. 1997, plans were made to capture the last herd of free buffalo in Texas. That herd consisted of three dozen animals that were selected and taken to Caprock Canyon State Park southeast of Amarillo and Briscoe County. Um, I dream of a world where we bring back the buffalo. I do. That we replace the cow with the buffalo as our primary red meat source in America. My dream is one that has many obstacles in its way, the most blinding of which is ignorance. In high school, you may have been taught about an animal called the beefalo, an attempt to breed the cow to the buffalo to make the meat more, quote, palatable. Because buffalo meat was considered tough and gamey and not really worth eating. And that's why buffaloes were just slaughtered for hides and done away with. But as Alex mentions here, the meat was all hauled away and it was eaten and it was considered very, very good. And this extravagant over-exuberance of killing them resulted in the demise of the buffalo meat trade, not the buffalo meat quality itself. I personally believe that the government actually encouraged this because... This broke the back of the Native American rebellions that were left after the Civil War. An army marches on its stomach. You take away the buffalo from the Native American and the Native Americans' will and ability to resist, along with the superior numbers and technology of the, uh, at this point you'd call the American troops, and it was over. It was over. You leave the buffalo on the plains, and the Native Americans may have been able to resist for a hell of a lot longer. One buffalo feeds a lot of people for a long time and provides a lot of resources. The advantages of bringing buffalo back over cattle are numerous. They're a little harder to control, but that's actually a good thing if we understand how to control them. Um, they are much more resilient. They are native to our, our climates, and they can exist from Texas to Alaska. 
with no real help. At capacity exceeding 50 million animals in the country because we know there used to be 50 million animals here with no management whatsoever. So with proper management, they could exceed that. They're far more predator resistant. It's not that coyotes, for instance, won't take a buffalo calf, but it's a little harder than a, a than a bovine calf, a uh, you know a cow calf. And a, a mother cow will try to defend its young, but the coyotes are pretty good at it. If you've ever seen what a buffalo herd will do to coyotes. And if you've ever seen the way buffalo act in a herd, they, they don't act like cattle. You know, one or two cows may gang up on a coyote, but usually it's the mom. And the other mothers are worried about their calves. Uh, bulls get involved with smashing coyotes into little tiny coyote bits when you have buffalo herds. Again, it's not that they're immune, and animals like, like bulls are even more capable of taking out coyote, but the wolf, the coyote, and the buffalo all evolve together. They all evolve together. The meat... Of the buffalo, I know I'm going long here for history seven, but the meat of the buffalo is to beef. If you're a hunter and you've eaten elk and venison, what elk is to venison? It's everything you love about beef and more. The fat is amazing. The, the texture is amazing. The flavor is amazing. There is no good reason to not see buffalo as a primary meat animal in our country. Why did it happen? One, again, you, you basically took all the fight out of the Native American resistance. And two... Since the buffalo were wild, they were less easy to commoditize into something and manage as a profit the way you can manage cattle. My take by Jack Spirico. Whenever we find a solution, we generally turn it into a problem. The more things change, the more they stay the same. By the way, in this year also, the Dust East India Company begins selling opium, and tea smuggling increases in England. Why? Tea costs one shilling a pound, but the tax was 500%. Government is stupid. Government, you're drunk, go home. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. We are running a sale right now through Sunday night. Sunday midnight, Central Standard Time. The sale will end, no exceptions. Discount code TURKEY, $30 for your first year. Discount code is TURKEY, T-U-R-K-E-Y, all lowercase. You can write it on the form, send it in, and pay by mail. Uh, this is for renewing customers and new customers only. I can't sell an extension to an existing customer's limitation of the system and how PayPal works. I would do it. I'm not immune or not adverse to getting your money in advance for your next term. I just can't do it. It's too complicated. Anyway, more about that can be learned at the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. If you're listening to the show in the future and the discount sale is ended, it's ended. I don't actually make up fake expiration dates. Sorry. All right. Next up, let's get into the main topic of today's show, which again is we're going to talk about making meads and fruit wines and, and, and ciders and sizers and pie mints and what the hell all that melon mills and what all of this means today. But I want to start out with a disclaimer today. I am an old school beer brewer. I have been brewing beer since 1996, so that's 10, 20 years, okay? I've brewed beer with all-grain brewings, dump and stir extract, partial mash, specialty grains. I've done every style of beer you can think of, lagers, ales. Uh, I know more about brewing beer than most people want to hear. Okay, I'm one of these guys that can geek out with the best of them with brewing beer. I've been making meads and ciders almost that long. As soon as I got all the equipment to make that, I'm like, so to make cider, I just put apple juice in the fermenter and add yeast. Yeah, I'm going to do that too. Okay, 
Mead? What's mead? I read about it in Charlie Papazian's first book on homebrewing. When I have to do this, this is the most awesome thing in the world. So I've been making meads and ciders for that long as well. I have always brewed and vented and made mead, etc., in five-gallon batches in conventional fermentation vessels, which you call carboys, or uh, fermentation buckets, and then racked. We'll get to what racked is in a second, carboys. The, the concept of going to a grocery store, buying a one-gallon jug of treetop apple juice for a few dollars, dumping a little bit of the apple juice out to make a little headspace, pitching some champagne yeast into it and affixing a form of an airlock to it and just letting nature take its course and ending up with a gallon of cider at the end to then either bottle as a still product or carbonate, totally new to me. The, the concept of even doing that just seemed ridiculous. First of all, I'm not going to make cider out of cheap apple juice from the store. Uh, yeah, I am. Once I found out how many people do it and what the resulting product's like and all the different things you can do with that, yeah, I am. Fermenting in its own bottle? That's crazy talk. Wait a minute. It's a pasteurized juice. That means there's, there's no bacteria, there's no sanitizing, there's no nothing. All I need to do is, is put my yeast in there and affix an airlock, which we'll get to in a second, and let nature take its course, and I get a product that is only fermented with the yeast I've added. Why haven't I been doing this before? And then I start thinking about meads, because see, Michael Jordan kicked this all off for me. He showed us how to make what he calls coffee pot mead at our workshop that we did in November. He makes like a three-quarter gallon batch of mead that's sitting on my bookshelf right now that I'm looking at. Uh, and it's basically just honey and water, yeast, and some lemons and, and, and oranges. And I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense because now I can make a pomegranate mead where if I made a pomegranate mead, pomegranate juice and pomegranates are kind of expensive when you start talking about five gallons. Honey's expensive. I could have 80 bucks into five gallons of that, and I could t find out that it's just not that good. And it's just not going to be that. I don't know. Right, So when you get into making meads, wines, beers, etc., then it's very natural that you want to experiment and you want to try all kinds of crazy creative things. Well, when you're doing five gallons at a shot and you're waiting three, four months to taste the result at a point where it's matured enough that even if it's not fully matured, it's not exactly what its potential is, you know, okay, this worked. It might, it might really do good with four more months of age on it or conditioning on it, but it worked. And I can do it again. And all that time you're sitting there with a five-gallon carboy, a big glass bottle that costs 20, 30 bucks, tied up. And not available to make other things. And then making five gallons, especially when you're doing beers, uh, or a lot of adjuncts, which we'll talk about what those are in a bit, uh, it can take a lot longer than making a gallon. You make a gallon, boom, you're done in 15 minutes, flat. Or less, depending on what you're doing. So all of this made sense to me, and I started playing with it. I've got a pomegranate mead going right now. I've got a raspberry mead going right now. I've got four gallons of cider, each in its own one-gallon bottle. And one is using a monosherat yeast, which I found out is like the go-to yeast to make uh, make uh, really dry cider out of this. One's a Pasteur Champagne. One is a Servie uh, wine yeast. And one is a T58 European Continental-style beer yeast. Why would I do that? Well, I'm just doing four gallons of apple juice, nothing added to it whatsoever, same exact apple juice, and I can taste these now side by side a few weeks from now and decide which one of these yeasts gives me what I'm looking for. And if I want to keep taste testing yeast, 
all I, I buy these, these two gallons linked together of apple juice for like eight bucks at Costco. So four bucks a gallon plus a dollar for yeast is what this is costing me to get this information. And then when I find that perfect cider using this cheap apple juice and what works best for it, then I can start saying, well, what happens if I make a cherry apple cider? And I'm already starting with this refined, this is, this is what I'm looking for here. Or I could say to myself, you know, with cherry, I want to leave a little more residual sweetness. Maybe I want to use a, a, a yeast that I didn't prefer for just the plain apple for the cherry. And I could try both. And I'm out, you know, seven bucks for a can of pitted canned cherries and water, four bucks for the apple juice, and a dollar for the yeast. And if it works, great, I can scale it up. If it doesn't work, fine. If it works but needs to be aged for a long time, I put it away in little bottles, and one day I have a bunch of little bottles of something really, really cool. And as I started to realize that, I started to realize how, how cool all this really was. And so I talked about it yesterday, and I explained how to make the uh, apple cider. And I've had people ask like a buttload of emails. And officially, I define a buttload of emails as more than 20 on the same subject within 48 hours. Then I've got a buttload on that subject is the way I look at it. Because for every person that emails me about something, there's probably like 50 of you that thought it but didn't bother to email. Okay, So I'm going to tell you how to make the apple cider again today, even though I just did. I know you don't think I did, but I did. But before I get into how to make the cider, how to make all these different things, the different things we can do with them, I actually want to go through a great big long giant dun, 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 vocabulary list of terms and things. I, I know that sounds like, oh, God, I'm back in high school. You're going to give me a test at the end. Hopefully it's multiple choice. No, listen. Um, the reason I'm going to do this list of vocabulary words is it's going to help you when you read somebody say, well, at three weeks, rack it to the secondary fermenter. Some of you go, well, I know what that means. But a lot of people listening to this show today have no idea what that means. So when we when we look, read a recipe for cooking, it's important that we know the difference between, let's say, braise and saute. If the specific instructions are not in the recipe of what to do. Well, when we're venting, when we're brewing, it's important that we know what certain things mean. And then these words also give you power. When I started doing the show eight years ago, I did a lot on finance and economics as well because, well, we were headed for an economic recession. Nobody believed it, but huh, three weeks or three three months into it, boom, boom, there we were. And I said, if you know words like a put and a call, or what a naked put and a naked call are uh, in the stock market, even if you never use them, you have a better understanding of the total and the your ability to invest wisely is enhanced, even if you don't use those techniques. Why? Because you know that other people do them so that you can see that they're happening. Therefore, they tell you something about the trend in the market. Okay? So when you understand all of these things I'm going to go through with, with making meads and ciders and wines and beers, then you understand what's possible. You understand the control that you can have if you want it, and including things that you don't necessarily choose to use, you can go to them if there's a problem. And we'll be talking about some of those things today, too. So I don't want this to be kind of dry and academic. I want you to see the value in it. And so I'm going to go fast and not try to explain everything at a highly academic level. Just expose you to some of the most common things that you'll hear thrown around in forums and, and, and circles 
when you're talking to people about doing stuff like this. Let's start off with what what fermentation is. I mean, most people think they know what fermentation is, but I, I don't know if you realize like how simplistic it really is. There's different forms of fermentation, but what we're talking about here is is alcoholic fermentation. So we have yeast. It takes a sugar. It consumes it. And it basically poops out alcohol as a byproduct is the best way to think of it. So we take a sugar and we turn it into an alcohol. And the reason that that's important is this is why a well-attenuated, which is where we'll get to next, alcoholic beverage does not taste sweet. Unless there's a lot of non-fermentable sugars in it. Some of the sugars in barley, for instance, are not as highly fermentable as others. And therefore, when we make beers, we usually use something like a hops And the hops provides a bitterness that counterbalances residual sweetness. Okay, But in the end, if we have a, a yeast that does a really good job and almost all the sugar that's in something is, is highly fermentable, we're going to be left with a lot of the underlying flavors of the original, but almost none of the sweetness and a lot of the perceived fruitiness of things like apples or grapes is because of the sweetness. So certain fruits will leave a lot of residual fruitiness and be what you call off-dry. They'll actually be very dry, not sweet. They'll have a sweet characteristic because of a lot of the fruity fruit bombness of it. Okay. So when we understand that, we start to understand that if we're making something like a cherry apple cider, it may not taste very cherry or very apple at the end. And if we want that, we might have to go about getting that cherry flavor through other means. There'll be a characteristic of cherry, but and the longer we age it, the more of it might actually kind of come through with these subtle, beautiful notes. But if you think about it this way, grape juice and wine do not taste the same. And then we make an apple cider, we say, well, it doesn't taste very apple-y. And it actually tastes quite apple-y, it just doesn't take, taste apple-y the way we're thinking. A glass of Chardonnay does not taste like a glass of white grape juice. It tastes like Chardonnay wine, made from the Chardonnay grape. But even the Chardonnay grape's juice, quite a bit tarter in some ways than, than your Niagara grape or your Thompson seedless, but yet it tastes decidedly different than the end product. Fermentation does not result in an apple-tasting, alcoholic version of apple juice. It res results in a apple wine or a light apple wine that we call cider that has a decidedly different characteristic. And a lot of other things happen to bring out flavor. All that happens in fermentation and a few other things. The word I threw out at you that, 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 that you know makes people's eyes cross sometimes when you bring them to this concept, attenuation. There's lots of ways to define this. There's a long, difficult way to define this. But just think of it for this. If a yeast is high attenuating... It can handle high levels of sugars and take them to high levels of alcohol. Just that's all you need to think about for this exercise. So if you have a high attenuating yeast and you have a lot of sugar in something, it's going to ferment it out to a very dry characteristic. It's going to get almost all the fermentable sugar. It's going to chew it up. It's going to eat it up. It's going to transform it and it's going to make ethyl alcohol out of it. Where if you have a low attenuating yeast, Eventually, it reaches a point where it says, that's it, I'm done, and more residual sugars left behind, so you go more toward the sweet and less dry side. And you can actually play with yeast a lot in certain recipes and find a yeast that will go extremely dry, extremely sweet, or somewhere in the middle. 
And that's why these one-gallon batches are great, because you can say, I think that's what's going to happen. Try three different yeasts, taste them side by side, and find what you really like the best. Flocculation, another one of these big chemistry words. How well it settles. A yeast that has good flocculation will settle out well, and the, and the beverage will clear well for you without doing a lot of other things. Okay? Racking. Racking is not like in pool where we get all the balls together and put them in a rack or a thing on a deer. Racking simply means we move the, the beverage before it's done or right before bottling from the container that it's in to another container. And the biggest reason we do that is because as it, it flocculates and settles out, there's a cake that forms on the bottom that we'll get to in a second called lees. And we want to separate that beverage from its lees so that it stays nice and clear and continues to clear and can finish its process and age well and not be in contact with all this waste product. Okay, Or maybe it was just time to bottle it. And since things get banged around when we bottle, we'll rack it to a bottling container. And that way when we bottle, we do that one time, we get it going, the siphon going or whatever method we do to get it to the racking, uh, to its secondary fermenter or to its bottling bucket. We don't touch it. We don't touch it. We bring no sediment behind. And that way when we're actually filling bottles or something like that, we don't accidentally stir up the sediment and get it into our bottles. Okay, so racking could be pre-bottling or because we're moving to a next stage of fermentation and aging it before we bottle it or keg it. Okay, and to do that we use a racking cane. Okay, which is a little thing with a candy cane look to it, and you get a siphon going. And some of the better ones now come with a self-siphon. They have a little tube that they're in. You put a, a piece of tubing on your racking cane. You put that to the place you want it to go. And you push it down, and it starts to siphon, and that way you don't have to worry about water and fusing your thumb and all that other good stuff, okay? So racking cane is how you rack. Or many of the, the fermentation buckets now, or the big mouth bubbler that I've got on order that I'm looking to try out, have a little spigot on the bottom. And that spigot is not all the way on the bottom. It leaves room for all that flocculation to occur. It's a little bit above that. You just stick your, your hose on it, your transfer hose on it, put your, your receiving vessel at a lower level, open it, and let it go. Really, really easy, really, really slick, but it's one more thing to sanitize, which we'll get to in a second. Next up, I wanted to tell you what priming is. You're going to hear about priming. Priming it, it, it infers that I do not want my mead or my cider or my sizer or my beer or my wine to be still. I want it all bubbly like champagne. So what we do to prime, when we use sugar to prime, is right before we bottle it, we add a little bit of sugar. Exactly how much? Refer to your recipe for that. And that sugar can be a little bit of reserved apple juice, for instance, because it has sugar in it. So we could actually just take our gallon of apple juice, reserve some. How much? I haven't figured that out yet because I haven't tried it that way yet. And right at bottling, put it back in. That a little shot of sugar in there, without all the yeast being completely gone, the yeast are going to wake up and start chewing it up. But there's not much for them. So they chew it up a little bit. They poop out yeast and... CO2, carbon dioxide, and they release it. And since it's now, we put it into a bottle and we've capped it or corked it and wired it down, whatever, it, CO2 can't get away. So it makes a little bit more alcohol, not very much between these little bit of sugar here compared to the whole. And it, the yeast is going to attenuate out that sugar till it can't do anymore because it's got no more food. 
and it's going to go to sleep, and it's going to flocculate to the bottom, and that's going to prime our, our, our beverage so that it's a fizzy beverage. We can also prime by using what's called force priming. This is where we take a compressed tank with some CO2 in it, and one way or another we charge the holding vessel, whether it's a keg or even a soda bottle can be done. With a little, I'll put a link to a, a video today where you can learn how to make uh, the, the lid of a two-liter soda bottle into a priming cap, and you can take a CO2 uh, tank and you can push it up to 50 PSI, Let the, the CO2 go into it and prime your stuff that way so there's no little layer of flocculated yeast and lees at the bottom of your bottle. So you don't have to worry about being gentle when you pour. So you can do that too. Um, there's sterilizing. Here's what you need to be know about sterilizing. In general, we don't do it. Not in the brewing, venting, mead making, cider making world. Sterilizing is the complete eradication and death of all things living. Sterilizing is to just do that, to sterilize. And people throw the word around all the time, and generally when somebody does it, it's either misspeaking or they don't know jack about venting and brewing. Because to sterilize, we have to go to really high temperatures, which screw a lot of things up when it comes to making uh, anything with a fruit in it, because it sets pectin and causes haze and makes all kinds of like jelly-like features, and it's not what we're looking for. One thing we may do with many fruits, specifically, is what's called pasteurizing. Now, pasteurizing is simply we bring it to a temperature that's inhospitable to wild yeasts, to bacteria and things like that, and we kill them. We don't kill them all. We don't kill them all in general because we would pasteurize at higher temperatures for longer times. We start getting into setting pectin, which again is when you start thinking about making jams and jellies with fruits, you, you, you cause this, this chemical reaction we won't get into, but we don't want it because we end up with a, a beverage that will never clear. It will never clear for us. It will always be hazy. And sometimes there's some off-putting characteristics of flavor, but generally it's it's visual more than anything else, but we really don't want it. Okay, But to pasteurize, simply bring to a high enough temperature to kill off yeast and bacteria, and then to hold at that temperature for long enough and let the temperature come down so that when we put whatever we want in there as far as the yeast, it has a huge head start. It's not that we've killed every bad bugaboo. It's that there's so few of them, and we just pitched this, you know, multi-gram packet of champagne yeast, pasture champagne yeast, and a gazillion of those little guys go in there and get a head start, and by the time anything that was left tries to catch up, it's too late. It might have a little bit of, of, of fun at the party, but it's crowded out. And, and that's what pasteurizing when we come into this world is. Remember, we're not trying to create here a canned good that can go on the shelf for five years um, uh, with a lot of sugar in it or something like that. When we create a fermentation, an alcoholic fermentation, we can get things in there that ruin the taste, but you're not going to give yourself botulism. You're not going to get sick, okay, unless you drink too much, and then you get sick from drinking too much, right? You're too much Jack Daniels to get sick, but you're not going to get chemically, biologically ill from any product that's been properly fermented. It's just not going to happen. Because all of the things that can live in there that can actually hurt you will die. They, 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 between the alcohol and the acidity that's created, all the stuff that can really hurt you can't live. That's why the pilgrims drank a whole lot of hey, made beer, apple cider. One of the biggest things the pilgrims, more so than beer. They did make beer from acorns. They, they did do that. But... Um, 
as quickly as they could, they started planting apple trees. They used any fruits that were available. They brought hard cider and ship holds with them because it was safe to drink. So as much as we hear about pilgrims and beer, actually in early America, ciders and wines were far more prevalent because we hadn't actually built up the ability to produce large amounts of grain here, and grain was so valued for things like bread, and because it stored well, it wasn't as often used as a brewing thing in America, just so you know that. So the next word that's important is sanitize. Now, sanitize is something we do when we are brewing and venting. Sanitize means, a lot like pasteurizing means for us, is to knock back the bugaboos. So sanitizing can be done with a lot of things. It can be done basically by pasteurizing with heat. Um, we can take small implements that we're using in our brewing process, and we can just boil a small pot of water, pitch them in there, and it's good to go. Uh, we can also chemically sanitize. Again, not sterilize, sanitize. A lot of people use bleach. It's cheap. It's readily available. You can buy it at the store. It's fine. I don't like it. You really have to be careful making sure that you rinse it well. Uh, I've had batches where I didn't get uh, bleach rinsed well enough that get medicinal nasty taste. And what that means is I actually left too much residual bleach. This inhibited the yeast that I pitched. And that actually allowed wild yeast to get in there because certainly we've killed the wild yeast or bacteria that were there. But by weakening our own yeast and pulling them back, and I, I know it wasn't just this is a bad residual bleach taste. I know when a, a must in this instance has become infected with something that doesn't belong there. Uh, you know, when you get band aid flavor, that's the only way you can describe it. You've gotten a, a, a bacteria, a lactobacillus in there that doesn't belong, and it's done things that you don't want done. And that, that's, that's why we sanitize, so that we knock back that stuff. Star San, which is one of my last things, is the sanitizer I recommend. Yes, it's a specialty product. Yes, you have to buy it, but it's awesome. I'll say a little more about it at the end. Lee's, I already mentioned Lee's. Lee's, Lee's is the, the, the guy named Lee, and we go over to his house, we go to Lee's house. No, Lee's is all the crap that flocculates out to the bottom of your fermenter when you're making ciders and wines, okay? Uh, some people do things with those, like make bread out of it, believe it. Cider Lee's bread is something I saw on Homebrew Talk Forum. Great forum to learn a lot, by the way, Homebrew Talk. Okay, um... The important thing with Lee's is, one, you want to get your stuff off of it without stirring it up. This is how we make sure we get a good, clear end product, and we can rack to a secondary, continue our maturation, and end up with a great product. The other thing that's interesting about Lee's is, what is Lee's? It is mostly flocculated yeast. It's also some components of the beverage that you've you've been fermenting. But it's mostly yeast and yeast bodies. Yeast eat and party and multiply and die. And eat and party and multiply and die. And eventually there's a huge population and then they've really done it and there's no food left and everybody either dies or just goes to sleep and settles to the bottom. What does that mean? That means if I decide I want to make a high alcohol uh, uh, fermentation. I want to push the limits a little bit. And I want to get a really good start. I can make, let's say, a base cider and then leave those leaves behind in a fermenter and then put my next batch onto those leaves. And I have a huge yeast population 
And yeast also need nutrients to do their job. When you make meads, it's something you need to make sure there's some form of nutrient there. But all the nutrients that yeast need exist in the bodies of dead yeast. Just like if we had to, as horrible it is, you could live off of eating people, because people have everything needed to make people. Yeast have everything needed to make yeast. So when you have this, this, this littered dead bodies of yeast, and some guys left alive and just kind of dormant, and we put that next sugary mix on top of there, the population goes, boom! And it goes, here's all the stuff that I need to do my job. Num, 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 num. Alcohol, CO2, alcohol, CO2. Make more. Bloop, bloop, bloop. And it goes crazy. This is where you want to make sure if you're doing this, you have what's called a blow-off tube. That means you have a hose that allows like a, a real big buildup of stuff to blow out of the fermenter because it's going to go crazy, especially with certain yeasts. Now, The good news is when you're using a lot of these yeasts like champagne yeast and wine yeast with these fruit fermentations, it doesn't go crazy. A little bit of headroom is all you need and you don't have to worry about blow-off. But when you start doing things like pitching on top of leaves, you're going to get this big blow-off. Just be prepared for that. Next one I want to talk to you about is cold crash. What's well, cold crash? Cold crash is ah, my cider, my mead, whatever, looks pretty done. I'm a little bit impatient or I just want to really really get it to where I want it to be so I can bottle it or move it on, I take it and I put it in the refrigerator. I cold crash it. And I just knock the crap out of everybody that's left in the party. And I'll go to sleep and flocculate to the bottom. I get a nice cleared up beverage. And I may want to do some things after I cold crash it to keep the yeast from coming back alive when I bottle it later. Like stabilize. Stabilize, I would use something called potassium sorbate. I put that into wines, ciders, etc. This is what you want to make sure is not in a juice when you buy a juice because it keeps the yeast from doing its thing. It basically doesn't really kill it. It just suppresses it to the point where it can't do anything. It holds it down, locks it up, puts it in a figure four Ric Flair leg lock and a headlock and a sleeper hold all at the same time. It says, thou shall stay asleep and dormant. Okay, So if I cold crash something, that means that maybe what I wanted to do for instance, was not completely fermented to dry. Remember we talked about sweetness? Instead of doing what's called back sweetening, which, which is a terrible, terrible practice that I hate and despise, unless you really want something to be sweet because I like dry, is you take some sort of sugar or sweet fluid after you've stabilized your, your, your drink and you add it back into it or straight sugar back into it to bring the sweetness up. Okay, that's, that's what's done with all of these crappy six-pack ciders like Strongbow and Angry Orchard and all this garbage. They back-sweeten the hell out of it so that young kids that want to get drunk drinking garbage will say that tastes like apple and it tastes sweet. These are apple-flavored wine coolers to me. They are not ciders. Okay, That's back-sweetening. So if we stabilize something after we cold-crash it, we can back-sweeten it. And we can do some creative things. Remember we talked about cherry. So if I add cherry juice to cider at the end, Well, I wake the yeast back up, it goes and has a party, converts all of it to alcohol. If I try to put it in a bottle or a container, I might blow it up or get overcarbonated, and I also lose out all that cherry flavor. But if I cold crash it and stabilize it with potassium sorbate, and then I add my cherry juice at bottling, and I put it in and I let it age that way, that residual sugar in the cherry juice will not start to ferment. And that way I can end up with a lot of that cherry character remaining as like a flavoring for the cider. And if I don't go crazy with, with, with how much or how sweet it is, I use a tart cherry, I can make something really, really nice. 
If I want to carbonate that, then my issue is I can't bottle carbonate it unless I force carbonate it with, again, either the carbonation, force carbonation top that I'm going to post a video for how to make or putting into a keg and force carbonating in a keg. Okay. If I want it not to be a still mead or a still cider. Okay. Um, on these sanitizing, stabilizing, etc., two of the things that are used the most in making ciders and wines. One is called Campton tablets. This is a potassium metasulfate, I think, is what it's made out of. Basically, you crush these things up and you put them into your must. Your must is what you're going to make your cider or your wine from, and you do it 24 hours before you pitch your yeast. So you get everything sanitized. You put all your stuff you're going to make your wine with, your sugar, everything into your container. You aerate it. You get some air into it, and then you put your Camden tablets in it. And what they do is they release SO4, I believe it is, sulfur oxide. And they basically knock out, knock the crap out of all wild yeasts and bacterias in it. And by the time 24 hours goes by, they've kind of off-gassed that SO4, SO2, whatever it is. And when you pitch your yeast, it has, it, you've basically, you've sort of sanitized the, the, the must. It's not that everybody's dead, everybody's gone, everybody's asleep, everybody's knocked out cold. You've just knocked the hell out of any wild yeast and bacteria, and now you've put in this this nicely hydrated, ready-to-go, gazillion yeast strain of your thing. They take over, they have a party, they kick everybody to the side. A few stragglers might be able to skate by, the pizza guy comes in and changes clothes or whatever, but they really can't get anything going, and that's why a lot of people use it. I've never used them in my life. I've never used them in my life. I have always either pasteurized by bringing up fruit or a juice to 150 degrees or used a pasteurized product. And I, if I start making uh, wine from grapes grown on my fence, I may have to decide whether or not I want to give this a shot. But I've never done it. Potassium sorbate is the other additive I've already talked about. That's used at the end to stabilize at bottling time so that wherever it is, it stops. Now, it'll mature, it'll age, but if there's any residual sugars properly treated and just follow the instructions of potassium sorbate, we're done. We're done. Whatever sweetness we're at, we're done. We're not going to have, we're not going to open the bottle and be all fizzy. It's not going to be like you're needing Lambrusco with that weird, fizzy, not-quite-done taste in the bottle with this mild carbonation. If you want it carbonated after you do that, you're going to have to do it yourself. Oxygenate. Okay, so that means to put oxygen in. That's not one you'd think we need to find, but we do need to understand it as it pertains to this. Yeast like oxygen. Yeast like oxygen because they're going to make CO2, and they need O to make CO2, okay? And they, they do that to make CO2 and to poop out alcohol, but they, they really do that as part of their life process. That's their eating and breathing and replication process. They, they need oxygen for that. It's a great thing to have lots of oxygen in your must. Your must is all your stuff that's going to make your wine or your cider or your mead before it starts to ferment. It is once the fermentation begins, that is all. We do not want to aerate anymore. We're done. Okay, so When I make a cider, for instance, I pour a little bit of the juice out, these little one-gallon bottles we're talking about today, and I shake the ever-loving hell out of it to oxygenate the crap out of it. Then I pitch my yeast, but no more. Oxygen before, not after, okay? There's some ways that you can use this to your advantage to produce some really high-alcohol stuff without distillation. 
such as some people will actually take an air stone, sanitized of course, with an air pump, and stick that down into the bottom of a fermentation vessel and pretend it's a fish tank for a while. And this will really kick off your yeast. For what we're doing today, you don't need to do that, but it's good to know. Yeast nutrient. Yeast need more than sugar. You know, if I feed you just sugar, you're not going to do very well. You need other things. There's certain nutrients, and there's a whole list of them that, that yeast can use in addition to sugar so they can do their job, poop out their alcohol, make their CO2 replicate, and be happy. And again, they can live on the bodies of the dead, but in the beginning, it's not really very feasible. So there are products that are just flat-out yeast nutrients that you add small amounts to your, your must, and that helps your yeast get off to a good start. There's other things we can do to make that happen, like uh, Michael Jordan's Summer Shanty Mead, a little lemon juice, a little uh, orange juice mixed in there, and that's a nutrient in of itself that allows the yeast to have something to feed upon beyond just pure sugar. When we're making a straight mead, water and honey, you don't need yeast nutrient. Your yeast will perform much better, and you're less likely to get stuck in the middle, right? Stuck in the middle with you if you use a yeast nutrient. It's not going to change the flavor. It's not going to hurt anything, and it's cheap. You can buy a pound on Amazon Prime for like eight bucks shipped for free. You use about a teaspoon to five gallons or so, maybe a tablespoon to five gallons. Uh, so a fraction of a half a teaspoon of a gallon would be way more than enough. So it's so cheap and it's so effective. It's really something you might want to consider using, though, in my little tabletop stuff, not using it any of it right now, and everybody's happy and everybody's perking and going. Okay. Stage fermentation. This is totally not applicable to what we're doing today, but I like to teach you things that enable you to go beyond And stage fermentation is one of those. I've already talked about some ways to boost alcohol capacity of your yeast or its attenuation today. A lot of yeast will say it can attenuate up to 17 to 20%, right? That's ideal laboratory conditions. And we can help create some of those ideal conditions. Another thing to understand is that you can get enough concentration of sugar into something that fermentation will not start. This is exactly why honey lasts forever with no preservation whatsoever. It's too sweet to ferment. It's too sweet to kick off. It's, so you, you hear like not to give honey to, to, to infants. I learned this from Jason, my bee mentor. It's really kind of preposterous in general. It's not honey in itself that does this. Something that's popular, for instance, in Hispanic communities and really shouldn't be because this is dumb and this does cause children to get botulism and die is they take a little bit of honey and put it on their pacifier. Uh, the kid starts sucking on this, and pacifiers, you know, have these hollow spots and all, and this honey mixes with saliva, gets diluted, builds up, sits around, gets used over and over again, and eventually things like botulism spores in the honey, because there's botulism spores all over the place. They're sitting on your body right now. Get ingested, and at a point where they've begun to multiply, it's not the botulism gets you, it's the toxin that gets you that the botulism produces, just like the yeast produces CO2 and ethyl alcohol, okay? And it's one of the most toxic toxins in the world, and next thing you get a dead kid. Okay, but it's not really that the, the honey itself is doing this, because the honey itself will not allow any of these bacteria and microorganisms to multiply. That's why you can find honey in a pot in an Egyptian tomb from 2,500 years ago, and it's still okay to eat. Got it? So we can get a must, so much sugar in it, that the yeast just can't get off the ground. Or they get off really slow, and they kind of peter out really early. Staged fermentation means that we would say, okay, we're going to take, and we're going to make a really high alcohol cider. 
that we'd really call a wine, almost a fortified wine, like a al uh, apple barley wine level or something, right? And we want to take it up. We want to use things, different adjunctive things in it, like brown sugar and honey and some straight dextrose sugar. So maybe we make the apple juice and we mix it with some corn sugar and we take it up to about 7% alcohol in the first fermentation. And then we take some water and we heat that water up and we melt in our brown sugar and we rack it to our secondary and that, that we, we, we account for the additional volume that's going to go in in the future And then we add the brown sugar, and we can heat that up to damn near boiling, let it cool down before we add it in, because we're not worried about doing anything bad to the brown sugar, so now we kick that in there. And the fermentation takes off again, almost from scratch. And now you've got this, this new environment for the yeast. They've already taken out all this sugar. They're only dealing with the new sugar. Yes, the alcohol is higher, but we're using a high attenuating yeast that can handle it. Maybe we even pitch a little fresh yeast of the same variety or a new variety depending on what we're going to do, and we do that. And then we rack that to a tertiary, or third fermenter, and when we do that racking, at that point we add our honey. And now we can start pushing the limit, 16%, 17%, 18%. Now, when you do this, you're going to want to really age things. You're doing it kind of to prove that you can. Most of the stuff that I've tasted that's been pushed this level is not very good, unless it's aged for years, and then sometimes even not so much. But it's just cool to know that you could do it. And if you want to go a little, you know, you want to go a little bit above what you're expecting, knowing this little simple procedure, like a secondary pitching of your sugar and an addition of yeast, and when to do it and how to do it helps you to take things to a new level. Next is pectic enzyme. Remember I talked about setting the pectin and cloudiness and all? There's always a little bit of pectin issues with any kind of a fruit wine. And if we use pectic enzyme, it helps to attenuate, or I'm sorry, flocculate out those pectins, and help clear faster. You can just buy that and use it if you want to. Follow the instructions on the label. Uh, bottle carbonate. Bottle carbonate, we've already talked about. That means we put our finished product into a bottle. We add a little bit of sugar to that. Follow the instructions for the recipe you're doing. We put a lid on it that's airtight. The fermentation kicks off again. It'll usually cloud up. Within a few days, it starts to clear out. We'll take it and put it into our aging closet or our refrigerator. And usually 7 to 14 days later, it's all nice and clear. We can pour it out, and we get a nice carbonated beverage. Okay, And that is a wonderful thing. And since there's going to be a little bit of flocculated stuff on the bottom of that bottle, when we pour it, we want to pour it really gentle. We don't want to mix it up. We may even want to pour, if we have a larger bottle, we might want to pour all of it into some sort of a decanter or a secondary bottle with a lid. And that way, we can leave that little bit of residue behind and rinse it out and get rid of it, or we can swirl it up and drink it because it's full of B12 and helps with hangovers, just saying, uh, though it will make you, um, what's the word, fart a little more than normal, but it will help reduce hangovers. It's a great source of B12. doesn't taste good mixed in with your, 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 your alcohol, though, so you want to get rid of it, or you can actually cultivate it into a new batch of yeast beyond what we're going to go today, but that's, that's bottle carbonate. Bottle condition may or may not include carbonate, but that basically means that after we've put the product in the bottle, we leave it aged in the bottle. Okay? Um, still cider or mead, that means we haven't carbonated it. That's all that when you hear a still mead or a still cider, it doesn't move. Okay? So it's more like a wine. Okay? Force carbonate, we talked about that already. That means we put our product into a vessel of some sort that's, that's tight and, and we force CO2 in through some means. 
usually a compressed tank of gas, and we pressurize it to a certain level, we hold it for a certain amount of time, and the carbon dioxide goes into it, and we continue that process until we get the carbonation level we're looking for. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a misconception. Most people think after you open a bottle of something like Coca-Cola in a two-liter soda bottle that that bottle must leak because you open it up and it's so fresh and wonderful and bubbly if you drink that shit, and I don't, but it is, for if you know if you do. I'll admit that the carbonation is pretty cool, the amount of carbonation you have. You use like half the bottle. You put the lid on super tight, super tight. And next day, it's just kind of flat. And the next day after that, it's really kind of flat. And the refrigeration helps a little bit, but not that much. And it just doesn't ever come back to being the same. Well, it's not because the bottle leaks. Because all that space that you've left by removing the liquid, the CO2 is coming out and it's coming up into the bottle and there's not enough pressure to force it back into the liquid. So soda bottles, two-liter soda bottles, are actually outstanding for bottling things that you either want to force carbonate with this little lid you can make or that you want to carbonate with sugar. And they will hold beautifully and they're designed to hold under pressure and they will work and they're great. You just need to make sure they're well sanitized and clean when you use them. And it's a one, one of many cool ways that you can uh, force carbonate in bottles and put things in a refrigerator and just pour as you want. Okay? Um, specific gravity. Specific gravity is how dense a liquid is. And we use a hydrometer, which is a tool that measures that, to take readings when we're making ciders, meads, beers, wines, the whole lot. And by knowing a starting gravity and an ending gravity, it tells us a couple things. One, we can calculate the alcohol by volume, how much alcohol is in there. And we know we're done. We know we're done. And it's considered very important by a lot of people that are really into doing all this. And I almost never do it. I almost never take a specific gravity reading. Um, as a brewer, I started using a program a long time ago called Beersmith. Beersmith will calculate very accurately what your starting gravity is going to be, and it'll tell you kind of where your ending gravity is supposed to be. And when a beverage is fermented out to its final gravity where it belongs, guess what? You know. And if it gets stuck, it's sweet, it's not right, it doesn't clear, you know. Now, If you really want to be good at what you do and you really want control and you really want to take lots of notes and you really want to be scientific about it, you absolutely should take check the specific gravity when you when you uh, start your fermentation and you should check it at least at least when you're ready to bottle or keg. And you should keep notes on that and what it meant and what kind of yeast you used and what the temperatures were and all that crap. I just want to make really good ciders, meads, beers, wines and enjoy myself. So I almost never bother with I have one. And if something doesn't look right, like it's really hazy, and it should be done by now, and the airlock's not going anymore, and it's not doing anything, but it just won't clear, well, is it stuck? Or is it just not clearing? Do I need to maybe add some Irish moss to it to help it clear, or do I need to, you know, cold crash it, or what do I need to do? Or is it is it stuck? Now, if I take a specific gravity reading at that point, it's much higher than it should be. There's a lot of sugar left in there. A lot of it hasn't been fermented out to alcohol. Alcohol is a lower density than water. So the more alcohol, the lower the overall density is. The more residual sugar, the high. So I might use it to check that. I think I've done it twice in 20 years. But I've like, I got, I just not sure what's going on. Usually, you know. Okay. Uh, star sand. I mentioned this earlier. This is your friend is what I have in the show notes today. Star sand is a sanitizer. It's basically an acid that you mix with water. You clean all the stuff you're going to put your must into or use for transferring or stuff like that. You shake it off. You don't even have to rinse it. Foams up a little bit. Don't worry about it. It's just an acid. I love it. 
What I learned from Nick Ferguson, though, is it doesn't work for me with the water that comes out of my well. My water that comes out of my well is too alkaline. And when I add star sand to it, it gets really, really cloudy. I thought that was normal. Nick said, basically, there's so much alkalinity in my water, it's neutralizing the acid. And yet I haven't had any real problems. So it probably still works a bit. However, a gallon of water from the store is a dollar. And with a little bit of star sand, that makes a gallon of sanitizer. That's plenty for quite a bit of work. Uh, and whenever I'm making ciders and meads and stuff, I always end up with water left over from bottled water that I'm using for these small batches. So that just becomes my little jug of sanitizer with star sand, if you need it. And with what I'm going to tell you how to do today, you only need it really when you're bottling or racking. Okay? I believe that the best thermometer for your uh, pasteurization specifically and most of your brewing needs is a floating thermometer. Now, when you're brewing and you want to be able to hold certain temperatures for longer periods of times and stuff like that, the stuff that looks almost like a meat thermometer clips on the side of your pot goes in the, in the wort, they call it, larger batches, sure. If you're putting a bit of um, fresh fruit into a couple cups of water and you just want to pasteurize it, you throw a floating thermometer in there, you get it up to about 150 degrees, And you kill the heat, and you leave it alone, stir it up, make sure it doesn't get any much hotter, and you don't set your pectin. Good to go, easy, breezy, peasy. All right. So I like floating thermometers for the type of stuff we're talking about today, if you even do it. To tell you the truth, this is how I do my pasteurization of fruits when they're fresh fruits to go into a mix. I heat up the water till it's steaming hot. I add the fruit and stir it up. It knocks the heat back. I bring it again until it looks like it's about steaming hot. I kill the heat. I let it sit. Okay. That brings me to my next thing. 150 degrees is your friend. Most recipes call to pasteurize fruits at 160 degrees. At about 180, you start setting pectin. You boil, you definitely set pectin. However, if you bring a liquid to 150 degrees, you will kill 99% of what could be in there, especially in the time it takes for that liquid to go from 150 down to 140. Now, again, we're not making canned goods here. okay? We're not in the business of sterilization here. We're not trying to kill everything. We're trying to knock back anything that's out of our control, our bugaboos, back down to where the stuff that we're giving the opportunity to ferment our must or wort, etc., too, is able to get a huge head start and do 99% of the work. So 150 degrees of pasteurization will do that for all the types of things we're talking about today. Last one is an adjunct. An adjunct is something we add in. If we're making a cider and we add cherry juice, it becomes an adjunct. If we use Irish moss to help clarify things, it becomes an adjunct. Sometimes an adjunct is for flavor, sometimes it's for clarity, sometimes it's for adding acidity, sometimes it's for increasing fermentation, but anything that we add outside of the base recipe to something is an adjunctive ingredient. And I know that seemed like a really long list, but you know what? You guys now know more about venting and brewing than 99% of people that vent and brew. Because most people don't know all that stuff. And it's really empowering to know that stuff. So let's talk about how we make a simple cider with apple juice, okay? Because I'm getting all this information out. It seems like, oh, I got to sanitize it. Okay, here's how I do it. I take a bottle of apple juice. I pour out enough to give a little bit of headroom, probably four ounces, okay? I rehydrate my yeast in warm water, about 110-degree water. So when you feel water come out of your faucet and it's kind of warm, 
or you pour a little bit of bottle water into a cup and microwave it for a couple of seconds, and it's warm, but it doesn't burn. It's not hot. It's just warm, about body a little bit warmer than body temperature. If it feels warm to you, it's a little warmer than you are. You're 98 degrees. 105, 110 feels a little bit warm to you. Okay? You put your yeast in or you let it rehydrate for about 20 to 30 minutes, and you dump that into your bottle of apple juice, and you add an airlock of some sort. You let it ferment. That's it. I think the reason I got so many uh, buttload of emails, how do I do it? People are looking for something more. That's it. And that's going to give you about a 45 to 5.5% alcohol by volume, light, crispy, easy drinking cider. Okay. If we want to take it up to about a 7% cider, a little bit more alcohol, then per gallon we're going to use about four-tenths of a pound of sugar. Four, you know, four-tenths of a pound. If you have a scale, you obviously measure that because um, you're looking at um, two pounds to a five-gallon batch. So just divide by five, you get four-tenths. It's right at a little more than a cup and a half. It's 1.6 cups of sugar. It ends up being that amount. So do a cup and a half and call it a day. That's what I kind of want to teach you here is you don't have to get too stressed out over this. Now, if you wanted to do that and boost your sugar, the good news is sugar will dissolve in apple juice very easily without any heat whatsoever, and the sugar is probably fine to use just the way that it is. If you really insist on making sure that the sugar is not bringing anything with it to the party that you don't want to be there, well, then what you can do is you take out your little bit of headroom apple juice, you take out a little bit more apple juice, you heat that apple juice up to, you guessed it, about 150 degrees, because we're using a pasteurized apple juice if we're doing it this way, and we throw our sugar in there, and we, we stir that in, and we let it sit till it comes down in temperature, then we put it back in our bottle, then we pitch our yeast. That's it. And we boost it, and we can do that with honey. We can throw a cup, a cup and a half honey in there. We can try any list of ingredients you want. And again, there's a program called Brew Smith. It's really for making beer, but you can adjust any volumes you want to figure out exactly what type of alcohol contribution you're giving there. That's it. That's it. Give it a good shake. Add your yeast. Use an airlock. What do you do for an airlock? Um, you can go to homebrew stores and online, Amazon, whatever, and look up airlocks and find all different kinds of little corks and stoppers that go in them in different sizes that can fit the top of different bottles. Um, what I did with the treetop apple juice, the bottle that it comes with, I had a whole bunch of little stoppers and airlocks that I bought for my recent workshop um, for people to be able to make their own fermented vegetables. And I just drilled a hole in the plastic top on the treetop bottle, stuck the cork in there, Pop the airlock in, done. Uh, a lot of the water bottles that I'm using have a pretty small neck, and I learned from Michael Jordan, you just get a balloon. Regular old party balloon, big bag of party balloons, stretch a balloon over there, and call it a day. Now, I thought, because I've done so much of this, I'm so smart, because I've watched it happen for years, and I see how much CO2 comes out, that if you did that, eventually the balloon would get really, really big and pop or blow off. Now, the balloons, at best, get the size of a small baseball, Uh, whatever a small baseball is, generally they don't get that big. Why? Balloons allow some air to seep through. They also tend to end up with little pinholes in them when you stretch them over a neck. And one way or another, they just do a good job of keeping you know general circulation air going back in there out. So you can do either or, uh, but probably an airlock is the way to go. What is the advantage of the balloon? Um, I talked about that when I mentioned it from Michael Jordan before, but one of the big advantages is that when you ferment alcohol, there is kind of a smell. And sometimes it's like a kind of a musty, eh, I kind of like it, kind of don't like it smell. 
I kind of like it. And sometimes the way it's described is a rhino fart smell, especially it's a rhino fart smell, for, especially with apples. And by using a balloon, you don't get so much rhino fart smell in whatever room you're doing all your fermentation in. Uh, it's also why it's one of the preferred methods of making jailhouse or prison hooch that I talked about before because the guards don't smell it. You know, with enough stinky guys in a prison and a little bit of a balloon over your hooch, it's less likely to be picked up on and found when they're shaking down your cell. Not that I've ever been there or anything, just what I know from watching TV. All right, so that's your basic cider. And then if you want to take that up to a five-gallon batch, you just you need a fermentation vessel that will hold at least five gallons, and it's usually a good idea to get something that holds more. Uh, and then you put your your apple cider, you dump it right out of the bottle in there. You pitch your yeast, you add your airlock to it, you go on about your business. okay? And at some point you may want to rack. And we already talked about racking. We move it to a second vessel, and we add an airlock, and we let it sit for maybe another week or two weeks or a month, depending on what we want to get out of it. We can taste it and make determinations on this. We can look at the clarity and make determinations on it. We can think about how much we've added to it. Meads take a lot longer to finish than apple ciders, for instance. Meat, honeys take a long time to fully ferment out. There's a lot of different sugars in there. The yeast have a lot more challenges. They have a lot less nutrient to work with. And if you want a mead to ferment out to a nice, dry, well-attenuated mead, you need to give it more time. You need to give it more time to mature. Okay. Um, if you wanted to make a basic sizer, though, which is basically apple mead, this is what I did for mine. Um, I got a, a one-gallon bottle of apple juice, treetop cheap apple juice. I also uh, so I took two quarts of that, and I just took two quart jars. Cleaned them out, a little bit of sanitizer to make sure they're clean, and and dumped my apple juice into those two quart jars and set them up on the counter. And then I used uh, a water bottle, a Niagara one gallon water bottle from uh, Albertsons that holds uh, a gallon of water again and it has a pretty small neck so you can use the balloon trick. And I took like a few cups of water out of it, just enough water to dissolve my honey. Okay, and I put a little st a stock pot on the burner on the on the stove, and uh, you know set that on on like a medium low and brought the water up to it was steaming hot. I took a two and a half pound um, plastic bottle of honey, and to make sure it came out all nice and easy, once I turned the heat off and I just had hot water, I took the whole bottle and just set it in the pot. That kind of melted the honey a little bit inside the bottle. Let it sit there for like a minute. Opened up the jar of honey, turned it over and dumped it in. Took a ladle, put a little bit of the hot liquid inside there, put the top back on it, shook it up, dumped it out. That got almost every bit of honey out of that jar. Set that jar to the side and stirred it up. The honey dissolved. If it hadn't dissolved, I would have maybe turned the heat on, add a little bit more heat, never boil it, never get it to super steaming, just a light steam coming off of that. That dissolved the honey. Killed that, took the honey mixture, dumped it into the empty now empty water bottle. Uh, the, 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 the bottle from Albertsons. Took the two gallons of um, apple juice through a funnel that I just rinsed in hot water. Didn't even sanitize the funnel. Dumped, that, dumped the apple juice in, pretty close to the top, a little bit of headspace more than I needed. So took some of the water that had come out of the water bottle, added that back in to bring the level up to about where I wanted it, which is just a little bit of a gap at the top. There's a picture today of the stuff fermenting on my desk. You can see how much of a gap I leave. And I'm probably leaving more than I need because the the uh, the wine and meat, the wine and champagne yeast are really a gentle, you know, initial ferment. They don't go crazy like beer yeast do. And uh, that's it. And that's a sizer.
That, that's the whole thing. And people are going to be looking for, well, what else do you do? You don't do anything else. You ferment that out. When it clears, you rack it to a secondary. You let it sit there and clear a little bit more. And then you bottle it either still or carbonated. And that's called a sizer. And what's different about that than, let's say, adding um, a little bit of honey, let's say a cup of honey to a gallon of apple cider, is you're not just you're not just bringing up the alcohol. You're not just adding some character to the cider. You're actually making a mead, and you're using apple juice as your primary liquid. Two and a half two and a half pounds of honey to a gallon of water. It makes a light mead for sure. You're talking seven eight percent at the most alcohol, but it's a mead. So you're making a true mead and apple cider mix. You're not just making a cider infused with some honey to bump it up a little bit. Uh, if you wanted to make a piment, which is basically a, um, a, a, a mixture of grape and honey, so it's a grape wine and honey mixture. Just get yourself a, a jug of pasteurized 100% pure grape juice with no preservatives in it and do the same thing I did with the apple juice. Would it be good? I don't know. But I think a Welch's white grape juice might actually make a pretty good piment. So a piment is just when we take and make a mead with grapes. Um, and that's the same exact thing. So it's a grape mead. We could do that as a red mead too. We could do Welch's Concord grape juice if, if it doesn't have any um, preservatives in it. When you're using these off-the-shelf bottles of different fruit juices, specifically apple, and you're going to make things out of them. What did I say we used to stabilize our wines at the end? Potassium sorbate. If you look on the ingredients, and it says potassium sorbate, or anything metasulfate, or anything like that, to preserve freshness in your ingredients, you do not want it. If it just says juice and water, or juice from concentrated water, it will work. I'm not saying it's going to be good. It probably will, though. And if it has absorbic acid, which is basically vitamin C, that's okay, too. But anything to preserve freshness beyond absorbic acid, and it almost always says to preserve freshness, you do not want because it's going to inhibit or kill dead or prevent any action from your yeast, and it won't ferment right. And if anything will happen, eventually it'll wear out, and some weird wild thing will ferment, and it'll stink and be nasty and taste like bandits. So that's really important to consider. And that why, that's why you need to think about this as you think about like sources for some of these other things. Because here's some things I thought about. There's a company called Oregon. Uh, not the people that make chainsaws. At least I don't think they're the same company. Uh, that makes canned fruits. And I've seen them in a lot of uh, grocery stores. And I checked on Amazon on Prime Pantry. And they have 15, like 15 and a half ounce, so roughly one pound cans of, of pitted cherries. And uh, let me check the price real quick so I don't exaggerate here. So it's 14 and a half ounce cans, uh, 26 bucks roughly, uh, for a, a case of eight, shipping included on Amazon Prime. So three bucks and 25 cents, three and a quarter, uh, a can. And I would say that one of those cans to a gallon of apple juice should make a pretty interesting cherry cider. Now, if you do it, like I said, if we take that and we add it to the bottle during fermentation and we ferment out the cherries and their sweetness and the cherry juice that's with them, etc., then they're not going to be real heavy cherry. They're going to be this background thing. If we were to squeeze out their juice or buy a pure cherry juice and add that after we stabilized and then either did it still or force carbonate, we get a lot more sweetness and a lot more cherry fruit flavor. 
Again, think about it. A glass of Chardonnay does not taste like grape juice. It tastes like Chardonnay. When we ferment a juice, we change its flavor, its characteristics, etc. It, otherwise, you could make wine with grape juice and grain alcohol. Now, most of us have heard of things like Purple Passion, uh, which is like purple Kool-Aid and grain alcohol, etc. And it's a good way to get a college-level buzz, right? But it's, it's not wine. It doesn't taste like wine. It tastes like sweet fruit juice with booze in it. And if you get the mixture right, you can't taste the alcohol in it, and you get really stupid. Be responsible with everything I'm telling you today. I do not brew to get stupid drunk, though occasionally, on rare occasions, it does happen. Um, but you, you, you can't expect that you, whatever you ferment will taste like it did before you fermented it. Just understand that with all these things. Another thing I've thought about trying is you can now buy, like, couple pounds at a time, dried white mulberries. So it's basically like a raisin made out of mulberries. Now, a lot of old wine recipes and things like that call for raisins, because when you rehydrate them, they release a lot of sugar and flavor into the must. I never did this with a white mulberry, but I don't see why it wouldn't work. Maybe a cup or two of dried white mulberries to a gallon might make a pretty interesting melamol, and a melamol is a fruit mead. Uh, or it might also make a pretty interesting cider. Raspberries and blackberries... Also, seem like really great additions. I have a raspberry mead going right now, um, being fermented with like a, a continental European beer yeast. I think it's going to make a pretty cool mead, and it's going to be like a 7% alcohol mead, not a real high mead. So it should ferment out pretty quickly, and not everything has to be these huge high alcoholic numbers. In fact, many times it's better that it's not. It's a little more enjoyable. You can drink a little more without getting a hangover or getting dumb, uh, and, I, and, and it is easier to make these things. They don't age as well. Higher alcohol, higher tannin, higher acid. All those things make product age better, but generally require aging to be their best. When you go lower alcohol, lower tannin, lower acidity, generally things don't age as well, but they require less aging to be at their less. A little rule of thumb there. Well, these canned cherries that I found are just in water. Uh, the same company makes canned blackberries, canned boysenberries, and canned gooseberries. They are in light syrup, most of them, which means they are water, the fruit, and sugar. I'd prefer that they were not added sugar because I don't have control over what that sugar is. But, you know what? It's still just sugar. It's still going to ferment out. It's not like it's potassium sorbate or something like that. So those are products that could be used uh, to infuse alcohols, etc., what have you, into your meads and ciders and things like that. Though, I don't know how they're going to work from a standpoint of haziness, because since they've been canned, they've been treated at high temperatures, they may have pectin sets, I'm not sure that's going to work. So if I was going to experiment with any of those, I would use some pectic enzyme. And you can also find many forms of, of juices, etc., that have already been clarified of that problem, especially when they're pasteurized. Pomegranate is something that seems really, really interesting to me. So I have a a mead going right now that's basically two cups of pomegranate seeds, which are the you know the pulpy, juicy seeds, and half halfway crushed, pasteurized in 150-degree water, smashed through a funnel into the bottle, shaken up, and we'll see how that works out. Cranberries, another one I got going. I always buy cranberries to make real cranberry sauce at, at Thanksgiving, so I did a mead that's just two cups of cranberries, 150 degrees, held at 150 degrees until they started to crack and pop, smashed a little bit with a spoon, shoved through a funnel into the bottle, Two and a half pounds of honey to a gallon of, of, of total volume, and we'll see how that works. Uh, my go-to 
tool for smashing these berries through a funnel, because it's a pretty small neck funnel, has become my knife sharpener. I use I clean the knife sharpener with hot water and a, and a, and a, a, a scrub pad, and then I wipe it down with sanitizer, and I just use it, and I smash. And it, it, it does double duty, because you get everything in the bottle without making a mess, and it kind of breaks it up a little bit. You can also freeze fruits that you're going to do with this. ruptures the cell walls and makes them uh, kind of infuse their flavor a little bit better. Again, you can experiment with different things. Some people will add fruit into the secondary fermenter and rack on top of it and start a second formation with the fruit. You can try all these different things if you want to. Um, and then this is my big advice with all these different concoctions. Screw it. It's only a gallon. Try anything you want. And if it sucks, don't do it again. And if it seems like it has potential, make adjustments and do it again. My rules for bottle venting. So this is where we're buying a bottle of apple juice on the store shelf and just going and throwing some yeast in it. Number one, um, if, if it is pasteurized, okay, it means there's no sanitizing needed. You open it. You pitch your yeast. Anything else that stuff touches needs to be sanitized. But the bottle itself on the inside is sanitized. It's pasteurized. That's why it can sit there on the shelf for two years and nothing happens to it. It tastes the same. So that's one of the really beautiful things about it. Um, also, make sure there's no additives other than absorbic acid. Okay, so we don't want anything with potassium sorbate, potassium metasulfate, anything that sounds or looks remotely like that, not good. Okay, um, we don't want that in our juices. If we're going to use a non-pasteurized juice, then it probably makes sense for us to pasteurize it. This can be put into a large stock pot, bring it up to 150 degrees. I know everybody else is 160. Trust me, it'll be fine. Again, we're not canning goods here. We're making freaking wine. We're making freaking cider, okay? So it's going to be fine if we do that. We're going to stay well away from any kind of pectin set at that point. We're going to have to let it cool down. It's going to hold 150 for a while, 149 for a while, 148 for a while, 140. And as it cools down, it's still pasteurizing all the way down to about 139 degrees before anything can really live. Uh, of any significant volume for what we're doing. Okay, so you don't have to do this. Let me tell you real quick how they make apple cider traditionally. You take a whole bunch of apples and pick them off the trees, off the ground, all over the place. They might get rinsed. Maybe. Probably not. They go into a thing that grinds them up and makes them into a pumice. That pumice is then put into a press. It is then pressed and all of the juice comes out, or most of the juice comes out. We're left with a really thick, compressed cake they call a cheese, and that can be compost, it can be fed to hogs, There's lots of different things that can be done with it. But the juice is then put into a fermentation vessel. It's covered with a, a muslin cloth, and it's left to ferment. Where's the yeast come from? Apples are covered with wild native yeast, and traditional apple cider was fermented with what was on them. Done. And you make some pretty good cider that way if you're good at it and follow proper procedures and temperatures, etc. You also can make some pretty gnarly cider. You have to be careful that nothing gets in there like flies and you make apple cider vinegar or make vinegar out of it, uh, different things like that. But overall, that is how cider was made for years. And it led to creation of something called Applejack. So you make your cider. Some of it's okay. Some of it's pretty good once you've had a couple cups of it. You ever notice that some things that don't taste that great after you have like your third one, it's pretty good? Okay. So, but some of it just, it's too harsh. It doesn't really mellow out. So what you do is you get a great big barrel, and you stick it out in your barn, and you fill it up with your cider. 
It could be your good cider, but usually it's your cider that you're not so fancy to drink. Uh, it's just fermented cider. And winter comes. And this is called icing. And technically it's illegal because it's a form of distillation. I am giving you this for information purposes only. So it starts to freeze. Uh, but the temperature is like hitting free, you know, just like I said right now, we're hitting 34, 35 degrees. We're not actually freezing. Well, there'll be a time when we start hitting 28 degrees. It's not like your chest freezer, right, where things freeze really, really fast. It comes and it goes. So every day we go out there, we skim the ice off the top. And the ice is mostly just water and some of the byproducts that we're not too fond of the flavor of. And we start skimming that ice off. And every time we skim the ice off, throw it away, or feed it to the pigs or whatever, or use it for flavoring beverages, or use it for chilling something, and the alcohol content in the remaining fluid, since the alcohol doesn't freeze, goes up. That's why it's a form of distillation. And we do that, and we do that, and we do that all till winter's end. And the deeper we go into winter, the colder it gets, the more it freezes, but the more alcohol is left, and we end up with a fraction of what we started with, and we can get that up into the neighborhood of 70 proof that way, or even higher, and that is known as Applejack. It is basically like an apple whiskey or an apple brandy that's made through ice distillation instead of still distillation. So using a pot still, we use Mother Nature in freezing to do that. That's also something that people can play around with, though I'm giving it to you for information purposes only, with air quotes around it. Just saying. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you can make the most of this. Don't sweat it. Just try it. Keep records. You know, if you keep records of what you did when something's good, you know, to do it again and add to what you did or stop because you've met me at perfection for what you're after or something sucks, you know, figure out what I did that didn't work, what was wrong, you know, the date you started a fermentation. So when it's been there like four months, it's still cloudy. Something's wrong. Something's bad wrong. An apple cider should ferment out in four weeks. It should be pretty damn clear at the, at the latest. Six weeks, if it's not clear, something's really wrong. A mead might take months. Might take two months, might take three months or more to clear out. Um, depending on how strong of a meat it is, also has a lot to do with that. Um, but do you know what I use for my super fancy record keeping now that I'm doing these small bottles? Uh, every bottle has a label on it. I get a Sharpie pen, I write the date, I write everything that went into it, the type of yeast, uh, how much of a fruit, how much of a water, how much of, I just write it on the bottle. And then when I, when I, when I rack and bottle that or, or whatever later, uh, I could just note it down in a journal if I liked it. This is what I did. And then I could just take that and multiply everything by five, and that's how to make a five-gallon batch. See how simple that is? And it doesn't have to be complicated then. And then there's no way to lose track of, like, was this batch 11 or batch 12 or 17? At 11 and 7. Like, it's just right on the bottle. You can't misplace it. So all you have to do is make sure when you put it into a, a secondary fermenter, if you're going to rack it, you throw a piece of tape on it and transfer the information. Right? And go on from there. Um, so let's talk about racking off, bottling, or kegging. Um, the easiest thing you can do with these simple ciders and stuff is to bottle them in their own bottle. So then we need a second bottle, and we're going to sanitize that with some star sand. And we're going to transfer uh, the stuff from the bottle to it. And th we might not even really be racking at this point for additional aging. It's really clear. You're ready to go. You siphon it over or pour it gently into the other bottle, and then you clean out the bottle you fermented in. You get all that yeast, yucky, mucky puck out of there, 
clean it up, run a little star sand on the, on the cap and through it, and then we put the stuff right back into it, put the lid on it, throw it in the refrigerator, go on about our business and drink it when we want. If we want it still and we fully fermented it out and it's not going to be going anymore, especially if we refrigerate it, cold crashed it, Uh, we're good. If we want to keep it still, we want to be sure, maybe we use a little potassium sorbate at that point to, to stop it. If we want to make it fizzy, we want to make it into a sparkling cider or mead, which I almost always prefer. I love sparkling drinks. I just do. Then what we can do is we can add some sugar into it at that time. And, and it, it, you would come out to a gallon, I calculated based on how much we use for five gallons, about two tablespoons. I'm going to say a tablespoon will probably get it done because it's all in a single bottle. When you, when you want something to carbonate, you want to fill it almost to the top, but you want to leave some airspace. Okay, you got to have a little bit of airspace there. So some pressure can build up. The treetop apple juice bottles, the Mott's apple juice bottles, from what I can see, they should be able to handle the carbonation pressure. And you would just add that little bit of sugar after you've got it you know, off of its lees, put your lid on it, and you should see it cloud up a little bit. And as it starts to clear back out, again, this should take about seven days maximum. If you want to, throw that sucker in the refrigerator, and when it's completely clear, pour it gently, and you're ready to drink. You can also do the... You can make the uh, the forced carbonation lid, and I'm going to put a simple hard cider thing from Instructables up today that has, among other things, that lid that you can make for two-liter soda bottles uh, to, to carbonate that way. You can also put it into wine bottles or beer bottles. If you want to do beer bottles, you need to get a capper. Okay. If you want to do wine bottles, you need to get a corker. And if you're putting... Uh, stuff into a wine bottle and carbonating it, the, the, the top should be wired down like a champagne cork style. If you're, if you're gonna do a sparkling mead or a sparkling cider, I recommend you use returnable beer bottle style bottles. Or a lot of the ciders that are being sold now are being sold in large, heavy glass bottles that use a beer cap on them, not a cork. And if you cap that with your beer capper, your wing capper as they call it, And you have to buy this from a home brew store. If it'll hold down a beer cap while beer carbonates, it'll hold down a sparkling cider or mead. It, might you be able to push carbonation really, really high like some champagnes and, 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 and blow a lid off of it or crack a bottle? It's possible, but I don't carbonate to that level. I just don't. And again, if you're doing like the big one-gallon bottles as carbonation, just when you feel the carbonation's where you want it, stick it in the refrigerator. It'll pretty much shut it down anyway. Okay, so it depends on how much you're storing. But beer bottles for storing sparkling meads and ciders work well. I like the big 22-ounce uh, bottles because there's less to bottle then. Or a full-size wine bottle with a wine corker, you can do that too. Um, and that's kind of my go-tos there. Uh, another great product, though, is the Grolsch-style bottles, the ones with the swing tops. Those work great for meads, still or sparkling. So if you have friends that drink a lot of stuff and have different bottles that are available to you, get those bottles. Never use screw-off beard bottles for two reasons. One, the caps will not hold quite the same as they do on it, like a returnable-style, full-glass, non-twist-off, need a church key to open it bottle. That's, that's one reason. But the bigger reason, because I've accidentally done it, and it's worked. So it, 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 you know, like you get one mixed in with your beer bottles, and you're bottling 60 bottles of beer, and you don't realize it, and you go to open it, and you look at it, and go, that's a twist off. That uh, should have failed, and psh, it opens up just like it's supposed to. Uh, it's actually more of a danger that the bottle will break. 
If you look at a Sam Adams bottle and like an MGD Miller Genuine Draft bottle, you hold the two empty bottles in your hands and you look at them, there's no doubt the returnable bottle is thicker glass. So you got a thinner, cheaper glass. So that's why you want to, you know, maybe not do that. Kegging, I think, is the gold standard once you start making five-gallon batches. Kegging is so simple. You clean and sanitize a keg. You 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 add you transfer four or five gallon batch into your keg. You put the lid on your keg. You take the keg. You throw it in your kegerator. You you, you put the air hose on it, uh, and you leave it sit for a week, and it's carbonated at the at your at your dispensing pressure. It'll carbonate because what happens, and this is what I talked about the soda bottle earlier. You think it went flat because the bottle leaked? It didn't because what has happened is the CO 2s begin to to leak out into the empty space in the bottle. Since there's no empty space in there, your carbonation pressure from your CO 2 distribution system is pushing in there, and now it's going into the liquid. And as it goes into the liquid, more comes in, and your your regulator just keeps letting CO 2 in. You want to do it faster. Put your keg in your kegerator, let it get cold first. Hook up your uh, CO2 hose to it. If you have other hoses, because most of us that build kegerators want to have more than one keg on draft, shut the valves to all your other kegs. Jack your pressure up to like 45 psi, okay? And then close the valve to that bottle, drop your pressure back down to distribution pressure, and open your other your other keg bottles. And then go back and do that again like four hours later. Because, again, you're going to jack the pressure at 45, 50 PSI in that keg. But what's going to happen? It's going to drop as that CO2 discharges itself into the liquid. It'll take several times of that. And over about two days, you can get a nice carbonation. Or you get it up like that. You disconnect it. You take it out. You shake the hell out of it. Put it on the ground. Get two guys. Kick it back and forth to each other. Charge it up again. And just keep doing that. You can you can force carbonate it in about 10, 15, 20 minutes that way if you really want to. If you get a good rotation going, though, you just add your keg, you mark it, this keg will be ready uh, 10 days from now. And you start, and if you take some from it and it's not quite carbonated enough, let it go, it'll get there. At your, at your distribution pressure uh, for your kegerator, it'll, it'll probably get there eventually. Or put it in there, jack it up to 50 pounds, shut that valve, Let that dissolve into the liquid. Do it one more time. And then open it up to your regular distribution pressure and give it a couple days. It'll be, it'll, it'll carbon up, carb up nicely for you. And once you get it there, it'll stay there because unlike your soda bottle, every time you're discharging some of the fluid, CO2 is coming and keeping that pressure at a constant level. Okay. So I love kegging. I love making kegerators. I can't go into doing that today. Um, But force carving in soda bottles is one of the most popular things people do with ciders and meads. So you get your two-liter soda bottles you have people save for you. Um, you transfer your, your liquid into there. You can use one and two-liter bottles. I think a gallon would probably make you right around three liters. So a one-liter and two-liter bottle would be perfect, or three one-liter bottles. And you add a little bit of sugar, and I would say to a liter, probably a teaspoon of sugar, carbonating sugar. Put your cap on, your regular cap that came with a two-liter bottle. It's going to be clean and sanitized. Let it sit, let it let it pressurize, let it cloud up, let it clear out, and then set it wherever you want it to age it. And when you want to chill it, put it in your refrigerator. And that's it. Or make one of these little special tops. Okay, final thoughts today. Show went kind of long for something really simple, but I wanted to give you a big-time education in how to do this stuff and how to think about it and how to be creative and how to be fearless with it. And that's the beauty of these one-gallon batches. You can be fearless. You're not going to make yourself sick, okay, unless you drink too much, okay? You, you either have a complete failure that you would not drink, 
or you will have a failure that's sort of kind of okay to drink, but you don't really love it, but it's not going to be pathogenic. It's not going to be poisonous anymore than we can poison ourselves with alcohol anyway. Again, too much, too much yeast activity for anybody else to be happy. It, people have been home brewing in this country since before this country was. Um, they've been doing it in earnest in modern times since the 70s when it was once again made legal to homebrew. And uh, the total number of people that have killed themselves with a bad batch of, of homebrew because it had some kind of toxin and poison, it is zero. No, zero. Unlike distillation, there is some risk to doing distillations wrong, etc. Fermentation of alcoholic beverages, again, you're either going to have a catastrophic failure that you wouldn't drink anyway, or you're going to have a product that's safe to drink, even if it's not a good product. Okay, So you don't have to fear hurting yourself now about a bad product. You're going to ferment something that comes out you don't like it. Okay, don't do that again. What are you at? Ten bucks, fifteen bucks at most for a gallon, like a really expensive gallon of this stuff. You, know, you might spend that much on, but I mean, you can literally make a nice, very dry, crisp, four and a half, five percent apple cider for eight dollars, and it's so much better of a. I know it's. It's treetop or much, Jack. I understand that. I get it. And if I had ready access to higher quality apple juice at reasonable price in my area, which I don't, I would use it. If you live in New York, for God's sakes, and there's people pressing cider up the road from you, and you can use fresh pressed, beautiful, crisp apple cider, please go do that. But, you know, for fun and to learn and to teach yourself and to make a pretty good product, you can do worse than taking these stuff off the shelf and using it. Um, and by the way, the Treetop Apple brand that's available at Costco, 100% USA apples. No Chinese arsenic-laden apples there. I mean, sure, they're spraying our trees with stuff I'd prefer not be there, but you mitigate a lot of this stuff between pasteurization and, and uh, fermentation anyway. But give it a shot. And my final thought, though, is be responsible. I've given you guys some information today that if you take it to the extreme, you can crank out 16, 18% alcoholic beverages or more or more. You take stage fermentation, uh, proper aeration, combining different yeast strains and, uh, what have you, you can, you can push 20%. It probably won't make a good product. Don't do it just to do it. Um, you guys that are college age, you might be thinking, holy crap. I can go buy 30 bucks worth of apple juice and $5 worth of yeast, and we can get shit-faced for a week. Don't do that. That's not, I mean, if you do, there's nothing I can do about it. That's not why I put this information out. Make these things in these small batches. Age them. Try them over time. Develop your skill. Develop your craft. Because even if your eventual goal, let's say, is to have an apple orchard and make some of the highest quality apple cider, don't think you're not learning from practicing your skills using off-the-shelf juices and trying these different blends. Because you're learning a lot of stuff like, sounds like a good idea, doesn't really taste good. Or, seems like a good idea, doesn't really taste good, but it could if I. And then you can get into like creative stuff. You can you know get yourself a charred oak barrel and do some long-term aging. But make a product that's worth taking that extra step with first. You can learn about things like if you want to make a cider that has like a really unique character, like vanilla is a great additive to apple cider. An apple cider with just a hint of background vanilla in it is great. You just use plain old 100% pure vanilla extract for that. Yeah, don't do it when you're fermenting. Do it, do it when, maybe when you rack or probably when you bottle so that it's there. 
so that that flavor is actually there. It doesn't get transformed and changed into something else. You know, cinnamon's another example, like an apple, cinnamon, vanilla. That just goes together. You can make a cider with that without it being in your face, without being like a freaking marshmallow thing or something like that. But again, it's something you want to subtly add. You want to add it toward the end, not at the beginning. You'll end up with like a gym sock taste with cinnamon. You put cinnamon in an apple cider and ferment it through, you get a gym sock flavor. You take real cinnamon, cassia, and you add it to the secondary fermenter after almost all the fermentation is done. You know, you take your, your, your cinnamon sticks, you put them in a pot, you heat them up to 150 degrees, you let them cool down, you put them and their water into that secondary fermenter, you rack on top of that, you infuse that cinnamon flavor, then you add your vanilla extract right at bottling or kegging, now you got some. And you can learn that and you can perfect that with cheap apple juice, and then when you gain access to a higher quality product, or you decide you want to do this commercially or something like that, and you gain access to bitter sharps and bitter sweets and, and things like that. These apples made for doing this and you go to a higher level. It just gets better. But now you're starting with a knowledge base. And this whole show today is about a knowledge base, a skill set, chemistry, mathematics. When my son was in grade school, I remember we had a parent-teacher night. And we're talking to his teacher, like second grade, I think, and she says, maybe it's either second or third grade. And she says, yeah, he's a great kid and this and that. You guys must do a great job. But there's one thing. You just tell, like, she didn't want to bring it up, but she felt like she had to. A little prissiness comes on. And this lady was a nice lady, so I don't want to take it wrong. But, like, it came out that that was in there. Like, there's one thing that's a little concerning to me. I said, well, what is it? She goes, Matthew told me that he makes beer with you. I said, well, he absolutely does make beer with me. She goes, are you sure that's appropriate? I said, well, he doesn't drink it. He, he participates in the entire brewing through the bottling process, and he learns about a lot of things. She goes, like, well, to make beer? I said, well, my son can do algebra to calculate the percentage of alpha acids contributed by hops to make sure that the bitterness is correct for the specific gravity of the wort. And you can just see your eyes roll back, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. Have you taught my son algebra yet? No, my son can ex explain the biochemical processes of yeast consuming sugars to produce CO2 and alcohol and how those work. And he knows a lot of other things about chemistry as well. Have you taught my son chemistry at that level yet? And she's shrinking now. No, no, I, I haven't. Oh, okay. okay. My son knows tremendous amounts about history because of the role that that brewing and venting and alcoholic beverages played in world history. Causes of conflicts, resolutions of conflicts, how soldiers... Have you taught my son history like that yet? She goes, well, it is only third grade. I said, then maybe you shouldn't worry about us making a little bit of beer at home. And that was the end of that. But there's a lesson there. It's not just, you know, batting a teacher in the head, which occasionally I, I like to do, especially when they're a little bit, like, they're special or something because they're teachers. Um... That's what you can learn from these things. And that's cooking is chemistry. Cooking is biology. Brewing and venting and fermentation of vegetables and food preservation. All of this stuff is science. But it's practical, applicable science to our daily lives. So enjoy it. Have fun. Be responsible. And what I'm going to conclude with today is I was thinking, you know, this is... The cider making takes us back to the foundation of this country, the early days of this country, before beer really took over. Beer didn't really take over till after Prohibition, believe it or not. 
There were apple orchards from one end of this country to the other. A homesteader that went out and set up a new homestead, one of the first things he did was started putting apple seeds in the ground, and you had all these trees, and almost all of these crazy varieties of amazing apples that have come and gone are still around, came from this golden era of apples in this country, the Johnny Appleseed era, though Johnny created far fewer unique varieties than you would think. Basically, nothing really came from... Johnny's efforts is like, this is the apple that Johnny created, right? You know, Johnny Appleseed's a real dude. But it would happen everywhere. And what would happen is, like, I would move into an area, you'd move into an area, we'd all plant these apple seeds because you could bring apple seeds with you easy, right? Cheap, free. And we'd plant our little apple orchard. And all of a sudden, you'd end up with an apple that produced an amazing vinegar. And I ended up with an apple that was a really good eating apple. And the guy down the road ended up with a really great cider apple. So we would all trade cuttings. We would all trade cuttings. And then we would take those cuttings and we would graft them onto rootstocks and propagate that new variety. And it would become Ann's apple and Bob's apple and things like that. And they all had different purposes. And apple cider was massive when this country was just an infant. And when this country was just an infant, yes, I'm leading up to today. So it had fought for its freedom. It had established its constitution. It had begun its evolution. One of my favorite presidents came into the real accolades of history at this point, but long before he was a president. The War of 1812. The nation had only been a nation for a couple decades, and its sovereignty was threatened in another battle with England. That battle, while beginning in 1812, ran until 1814. And in 1814, the war ended, and we were victorious, and we preserved this young nation. We preserved it. But you didn't just pick up the phone and call somebody. So down near a place called New Orleans, neither the American forces nor the British forces had gotten the word that, hey, it's over, it's done, we can all go home now. So the war raged on. And... It was real for the men that fought it. And honestly, had the battle gone differently, who knows? It may have changed the course of history. Maybe uh, maybe England would have said, you know, uh, we don't know. Maybe we could continue this campaign. I didn't know this was going to work out. So more than 10,000 British attacked a couple thousand ragtag American troops put together by old Hickory. Andrew Jackson. And the results of that were the American forces lost 70-odd men. The British forces lost greater than 2,000, turned tail, and ran. And it was one of the greatest victories the young nation ever experienced in combat. Even though it was after the war, it made Andrew Jackson into a legend. It made him a forerunner to eventually become our president. And the president that had the stones to destroy the original incarnation of Federal Reserve, the first national bank, and free this nation from the tyranny of debt. After he was gone, they got back in business. But before that, we had that freedom because of a guy who wasn't afraid, who stood up. And that's what I want this nation to do, to stand again like we did back then. Like we did all the way up to, it seems like World War II, even Korea and Vietnam. We've grown weak today. Maybe we need a little more salt in our blood. 
Maybe we need a little bit more cider and a little less of the wine cooler era. Maybe we need to hearken back to a time when people brought seeds in their pocket to establish a new life. And a time, back in 1814, when we took a little trip, along with Colonel Jackson, down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans And we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico We looked down a river and we see the British come And there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing Fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Hickory said we could take them by surprise if we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eyes. We held our fire till we see their faces well. Then we opened up our squirrel guns and really gave them well. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. 